Hello, welcome to the Science of Policy podcast. My name, as always, is Toby, and today I'm joined by Professors Bart van den Hoek and Jana Silman. Professor van den Hoek is an expert in climate change and the socio-economic impacts of climate change. He's held professorships at Amsterdam and Utrecht universities. He's an IPCC working group co-chair and he's now the scientific director of Deltaris, a not-for-profit institute for applied research based in Delft. And Professor Silman is a geoecologist at the Centre for International Climate Research in Oslo and at the University of Hamburg. She studies the effects of climate extremes, and in particular the relationship between physical climate changes and socio-economic effects. And she was also an IPCC lead author. So welcome both of you to the podcast. Good morning. Hello. Good morning. Now, among your long list of academic activities and policy advice activities, you have both been engaged on a research project with the slightly cryptic name Receipt, which it says here is about storylines. So perhaps you could tell me a bit about Receipt and what this storyline thing is all about. Yeah, a good question. Yeah, Receipt is actually uh, a metaphor for the receipt of all kinds of event information or event consequences in Europe. Uh, yeah, Jan and I, we were jointly uh, involved in um, in a workshop a couple of years ago that dealt with the, 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 the larger issue, how are we going to make sense of all these climate, uh, climatic features that, that are around? Eh? We, we, we normally make a lot of analysis of past climate and we make all kinds of scenarios for the future. And we all know that these, these analyses, yeah, there is a lot of uh, power in these scenarios, but there's also a lot not in there in the in the the very nitty-gritty detail of, of extreme events, for instance, that affect society, that there's all kinds of, you know, co- conditional dependencies that are rarely really well represented in uh, in these generic uh, IPCC kind of uh, climates. And that's how we can get and say, yeah, we, we should do something about it. We should make climate change more recognizable. We should make, we, we should be able to allow for yeah, the, all the conditional dependencies of how, when, how um, um, an extreme event and its impacts materialize. Yeah, and that workshop was uh, a testimony, uh, you could call it, of a community of scientists that put forward the, the idea to, to bring in more storytelling in climate assessment. And to particularly also not only look at the generic storyline behind the global evolution of how climate may evolve, dependent on macroeconomic and macro geopolitical developments, but also storylines and scenarios of individual events that have been influential. Yeah, and, and it's also, I mean, the receipt is what you get back from our climate impacts, but also it is the acronym for our title of this EU project, Remote Climate Effects and Their Impact on European Sustainability, Policy and Trade. And if you pick letters from this uh, long title, then you get receipt. <laughs> yeah, this is the EU approach to making acronyms. Pick the letters you need from anywhere in the word and somehow force the acronym you're looking for. Exactly. I think yeah. receipt is far from the worst culprit anyway. So let's zoom in on this concept of storytelling or storylines. Um, it strikes me that in a way, very loosely, you could say all kind of scientific outputs, all scientific claims are storylines. You say things like, the evidence shows that X and Y are happening, or I don't know, if X happens, then Y is likely to happen. So what do you mean that's different specifically here when you talk about storylines? 
Yeah, I think there are a lot of uh, similarities uh, with, with standard academic practices. And also, if you look at the big IPCC scenario framework, they are also built on storylines. They are built on storylines assuming uh, a global economy to develop this in this, this direction. So that is, that is nothing new. But I think the, the storytelling concept that we uh, approach, yeah, first of all, yeah, there, is no, there is no constraint on what, what all can happen. So every display of future conditions via scenarios is heavily rooted in assumptions you make. And I think that's one of the, the scientific attributes of, of storytelling. It is a story, but not just a fairy tale or a hot scenario. It is based on um, an unfolding of events given certain conditions on where we start or what happens on the way, on the way there. Under these conditions, this is a storyline that, that can be interpreted as a causally plausible um, yeah, event chain. And so that is also putting a bit more emphasis on, I, I would say, the documentation of, of all these assumptions and an assessment of their probability and uh, also an assessment of their relevance, for instance. And so, again, it's nothing new, but it puts a bit more the emphasis not just on the processes or the resulting maps of impact indicators. It puts the emphasis on telling how you got there and what, what the assumptions were and why these assumptions make sense. So it's also a bit of a cultural development or you know, an, an, an attitude development of the scientists that are producing these storylines. Yeah, and in addition, I would say, I mean, we're taking the advantage of our human nature of being storytellers and story listeners. But what we do with these uh, physical climate storylines is that we try to underpin them with physical climate modeling. So we have these fantastic climate modeling tools and a lot of climate information. And we want to underpin a storyline that we tell about the future with uh, physical climate modeling. So it, it becomes possible and plausible because we can put in emissions, we can project an event that has happened in the past into the future. It's also a little bit more scientific storytelling because we we use our most uh, recent tools that we have to give it a physical reasoning as well. Okay, so let me see if I'm understanding this right. You have this large body of climate data and some working models. And the idea here is to, as it were, plug in a scenario based on the knowledge you have from a particular situation or, or else tweak the variables from a previous scenario or whatever and then run the model, and then it spits out what the next part of the story will be. Yes, in a way, yes, but, but it's not push a button and, and let's see what comes out of it. I think the storyteller scientist uh, is held accountable for every step in between. Uh, he or she is being asked to explain or at least demonstrate plausibility of every next step in the chain. So it's not just a randomizer or a random generator for whatever future you like, it's rooted in, in, in a story that goes with it. And that's why we also refer very often back to historic events, because those were demonstrably uh, plausible because they happened. And we select events that, that may have had an, uh, quite an important uh, or a significant socioeconomic impact on a region or on Europe as a whole or whatever. And we're trying to tear apart that event, uh, what, what actually led to it. And as, as Jana says, we, we use physical model uh, to capture the event as it's happened in the past. 
And then we are going to do a bit of testing around it. Let's let's just okay. Now we have the event reconstructed in our say modeling paradigm. Let's let's tease it here and there. Let's make some changes to to initial conditions or to some some assumptions or to some boundary conditions, whatever. And then let's see how the event then will evolve. And so I think again in the uh, the uh, a lot of the interpretation or the added value of what 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 you get out of it is by comparing multiple versions of that very same event that's that's also very deeply rooted in the in the approach of receipt so we normally most of the uh, impact analysis that we did we, we we selected a couple of events in the in in the recent part to, uh, that demonstrate actually how the uh, how the impact actually works soy production in in latin america that is affecting uh, agricultural industry in europe or uh, hurricanes uh, affecting Coast uh, in uh, of the US uh, affects European investors in, in insurances or assets that are damaged, whatever. So there's lots of examples that, that demonstrate how Europe is sensitive. Uh, they are illustrated by recent events, and we try to capture that event and see if indeed these modeling uh, uh, tools are able to reconstruct it, sort of similar to what we uh, what we also saw in the real world. And if that is done, okay, now we have a, a toolbox that can allow us to play around uh, by changing conditions and, uh, and assumptions and see how then the event is evolving. Do you have either of you an example that springs to mind of how this works? I mean, I could uh, give an example from a storyline we have created in, in Norway. There was a big event that has hit Bergen, the city of uh, in a city in Norway, and that has uh, caused a flood there and landslide and big damage, um, and even one person died in this in this event. And then we used our model tools to see, okay, can we capture this model with a uh, with a weather model? Um, um, and then we could, because it's driven by a certain atmospheric features, we could capture this in the weather model. And then the stakeholders, they use weather models in their, you know, flood warnings, in their news, in their planning and everything. So we use the same weather model that was uh, uh, used by all these stakeholders. And we, we tried to capture this event in the in this weather model. And then we use the climate model to, to force this weather model, which has a very high resolution, uh, 2.5 kilometers, um, uh, to a future climate. So a warmer ocean, warmer atmosphere. So And then we reproduced an analog of this event that has happened in the, in the past in that area, uh, a future event. And that event um, was then reproduced in a weather model. So we could put this weather projection for the future in the flood forecasting. And we could see what, how the flood warning would look like for such an event in the future. And then we could see that uh, many more uh, catchments were flooded um, at for this one event than has happened in the past and then we could ask the stakeholder what would you do if so many uh, catchments are flooded are you are you prepared for this are you prepared for this water levels and so on so we we could uh, visualize and represent a past event into the future and and give it as a as a yeah, picture or a scenario a stress test for the stakeholders yeah, and if you want, I can also give an example from uh, the receipt project. For instance, yeah, there's, uh, we have well, 30, 14 uh, different storylines, uh, well, elaborated in, in quite a bit of detail, but one of them that illustrates nicely the concept is, for instance, um, 
you may uh, remember the uh, the big locust outbreak of uh, in the Horn of Africa that that, that uh, disrupted the harvests in 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 a couple of countries in the Horn of Africa. For Europe, this is of interest because we have uh, development aid, we have humanitarian aid. They run, for instance, at the European level, there is some kind of an, an early warning system, what we call INFORM, which they use to, to monitor what's going on on the planet and where actually attention should go. Well, this locust outbreak was obviously a very uh, a prominent feature and uh, lots of actions from Europe were, were triggered by that. But then the receipt call that, uh, that we responded to was actually trying to give a grip on what climate change is doing to these uh, remote influences. So what we did is actually recreated the, the, the locust outbreak in, uh, in terms of, you know, um, uh, food security in the region and also trade uh, positions or uh, uh, the, the development of uh, supply chains or uh, reservoirs and how they developed, etc. So all kinds of both fiscal and socioeconomic features of that uh, outbreak event were modeled. And what we also did in that case study is, yeah, test a couple of interventions and what they would affect. And then interventions like um, trade restrictions. In the 2010 drought crisis, uh, we saw that uh, uh, Russia and Ukraine actually put extra trans-export barriers because there was a, a decline in wheat production in, in, in domestic areas. And they said, yeah, we, we, we cannot just export as much as we did before. And yeah, that kind of things were also modeled in that hypothetical future case, which is clearly showing how yeah, the already uh, risky or what is it, uh, a pressing situation is actually aggravated a lot by these extra measures. And so we could also explore policy implications. And what, what would happen if we would not put these export restrictions, but would secure more uh, reservoirs uh, of, uh, of, of wheat in, uh, ahead of it? So whether we would capitalize the use of reservoirs that, that were, uh, were somewhere else. Or, and that gives also a bit more information. Okay, what, what can you do about it? It's not just a risk assessment. It's also an assessment of, of, of the measures that one would take to, to minimize that risk or reduce that risk. And that's also, I think, a very helpful and powerful element of this of this storyline because you can then test your intervention with an example at hand that has had quite a bit of impression in the past it had triggered already a couple of interventions and now you can replay that by putting yourself in a hypothetical future and see okay what would i be able to cope with uh, yeah when i first started reading about this storylines approach. I have to admit going in, I assumed they were primarily like a communications tool. You know, you have your scientific results already and now you just want a way to make them vivid for a non-scientific audience, for the policymaker or the stakeholder or whatever. And so you kind of embed the knowledge you have in a context that resonates for the audience and then tell a little story about what that implies for them. But listening to you now, I think I hear you describing it as much more like a research tool, you know, a way to actually derive new knowledge and not just to package up existing stuff yeah no it's 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 both i mean it's one way uh we scientists start how can we better uh, communicate our our science all this we know about climate change how can we better reach out to the stakeholders make it more tangible to them um 
And so we thought about this way of storytelling would be more natural to, to, to do that. But also, I mean, once we started with it, or it, from the beginning, we knew it's a, also a scientific challenge because uh, it's not just uh, yeah, giving out a story. The, the problem is what Bart said before. We have a lot of assumptions and we, we often are then ask, oh, but this is just cherry picking. It's just one event or it's just so. So we uh, there's a lot of science behind it. How do we complement what we get out on the storylines or the probabilistic approaches that we have in the IPCC so far with uh, the probability of climate change for this and this scenario? How we complement that with the storyline? How do we place the storyline in that context of all the other climate information we have? And so it's not only just we can communicate it and then that's the end of the story. It's a lot of science behind it. How can we better use our models to support these uh, storylines so we have the physical uh, underpinning for it? And also how do we make these assumptions as robust as, as possible? How do we bring uh, the physical with the socioeconomic components of a storyline together and and so there's lots of science behind it that is really interesting and uh, yeah. But um, but you're right. It's 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 definitely also a methodology that tries to reach the hearts of the people by by using narrative language and format that are sometimes a bit better understandable than the the abstract figures with uh, with lines uh, that uh, comprehend. That, or that encompass uh, the, the development of, of the entire planet rather than conveying the message, yeah, what's in it for me? It's, that, that is also part of the, of the concept indeed. So I want to explore some of the interesting stuff that you've brought up so far. I wonder if I can pick up first on this concept you just mentioned of scientific rigor. So it strikes me there's a, a lot of judgment. Well, I mean, the underlying data might be rigorous, but then so categorizing a particular storyline element as an instance of event type X and then saying, okay, we've seen other events of type X in the past. So now we know what kind of, as it were, what kind of causal factors to look for. This seems like a pretty, I don't know if I want to say subjective, but it seems to require a lot of expert judgment. And indeed, as you said, making some assumptions um, in doing that process of like analogizing between different events. And that's before you get to the question of how the story is framed and communicated, which is clearly like a matter of communication skill. I mean, this isn't really a criticism. I'm just, I think it sounds like it's just the nature of the method, but I wonder if you have any comment on that question of subjectivity. Yeah, we, uh, we, we, it has contributed a lot to our internal discussions that actually are rooted in our, the way how we see the world rather than, than science. It's also about, um, is, um, objectivity is independence is, is subjectivity is that a bad or is that a good thing of our scientific business and uh, and for me personally and I, I guess for Jana it's also happening but at least in some conversations we had in the project also we know this business of climate change is not a topic that that can be dealt with a, a purely objective format uh, we uh, we also know that one has to put an, an opinion or at least an, an, a subjective value statement on the notion that the world is warming and yeah? the world warming as such is an objective fact but it doesn't say anything um, and 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 so we had a lot of discussions on that and personally i i think that um the, the science a scientific practice does not necessarily need to be objective 
but when being subjective, you need to be able to point at the, the assumptions that you make that underlie the choices that you make. And so we, we, we in, in the, in the, for instance, in the methodology paper, we also outline um, uh, a kind of a structural check criteria that, that, uh, that, that you should go for before applying the methodology. And then, for instance, plausibility always has to be demonstrated. Jana was referring to the use of proven models, physically understandable models, models that are doing a good job in weather forecasting and then are used to, so that is all contributing to the fact that it's not fairy tales. And that is a, a bit part of the scientific rigor. It also is about relevance. So the, the events that we select are arguably relevant, at least perceived by society as being relevant because they had an impact or they are covered in media or they are covered in uh, in discussions in political landscape. That is an element that we are not uh, exploring very, um, you know, exotic features that may uh, be of interest of one scientist, but are, no one would care about it. It's really, that is part of the selection. Yeah, and it is about the, the legitimacy, the, 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 the fact that, that one can trace the entire chain and the entire communication. It can be falsified. We are open to criticism. We are able to, uh, to reply to comments and questions about it. And we do not claim that this is the best or the only or the most suitable event that we could have told. We therefore, we thereby also refer to these IPCC projections where that claim is also not possible. And we also see scientific deficiencies. Models aren't perfect. The ability of models to get a good grip on the, for instance, the compounding statistics of drivers of extreme events, it's arguably not done very well. If you look at the past of the summer of 23, where lots of events took place in the climate uh, that, that occurred simultaneously. And a lot of climate scientists were giving public comment, oops, this is uh, pretty uh, unexpected, or this uh, nature is really uh, calling uh, upon us, and it's actually maybe a sign of even accelerated climate change. And in, in a way, it is a bit surprising that all these climate modeling activities that have been there for, for 20 years aren't able to get grip on the fact that now all these events take place at the same time. So also in that practice of, of scenario development, but one could also argue, is this objective? Is this representative? Is this telling the story that is taking place in the real world? And I think our approach isn't different from that. That's an important point you, you're talking about, Bart. It's about uncertainty. In science, it's always, I mean, we have these scenarios and people looking for what is more likely, which one, and and but the future is uncertain. <laughs> Not just because emissions, it's because human behavior, it's because the climate system is also having feedbacks and everything. So we are talking here about uncertainty. And often we have with climate and, for instance, low likelihood, high impact events, We have deep uncertainty, we call it in science. And storylines are a way to disentangle uncertainties. We can say we have some uncertainty here. We are more certain here. We have, we have our model, but we need to take. So it's also to bring something closer to the to the stakeholder, to the user about uncertainty and describing uncertainty along the lines of the storyline. So I think storylines are a very good tool also to yeah, get a grasp on uncertainty, the different types of uncertainty when we're talking about future climate. So is the storyline, do you make an effort to quantify uncertainty? Or is the point more to say, simply something like 
this could happen. And well, just imagine if it did. So please think about it. Exactly. Exactly. That's the point also about it. And it's not just, it's, it's what I said before, it's, it's stress testing. Uh, and it it could turn out this way, it could turn out this way, but we need to be prepared and it, it may not happen exactly that way. But I mean, if you're talking about IPCC scenarios, in some place it becomes three degrees warmer. So what does it mean? It's 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 very abstract. So we need to um, we need to be more concrete in order that uh, to stimulate the imagination of people. And anyways, the the weather, the climate, it's uncertain. <laughs> How what what will happen to us? It's uncertain tomorrow. So we need to deal with that, and we deal with uncertainty every day. And I think storylines can can bring that a little bit closer. Naya, and in some cases, we sometimes combine the discrete storyline where we, in principle, we do not assign a probability to it. That is the idea. And so that is indeed a point of critique also. But that is also applicable to the IPCC scenarios. They are not assigned probability. But in some cases, we may get a bit more grip on probabilistic elements. And for instance, the storyline that we developed about the landfall of a uh, tropical cyclone uh, Harvey in, uh, in, in Houston uh, in, when was it, 2017? A toolbox was set up by one of the, the partners, also used in other uh, projects before, that was able to generate a lot of uh, synthetic alternative pathways of that, uh, that uh, particular uh, hurricane climatology or the, 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 the hurricane probability distribution in that area is, is pretty well covered in, in the toolbox. And the toolbox does rely on more than just observations of the few that have been there in the last 50 years. They also use lots of ensemble models for seasonal projections or weather forecasting, etc., and all kinds of statistical models to actually build a much wider probability distribution around this kind of events in that kind of area with this kind of you know uh, time-evolving consequences. And that also gives a bit of support for the a probabilistic assessment of that storyline. But indeed, that is not possible for all of them. Yeah, the combination of a locust outbreak and an extreme dry, dry episode, as I uh, illustrated earlier in the example, that goes to combinations of very low probability uh, features uh, to start with. And the combination of those is, is, is even a couple of orders less uh, certainty uh, to, to, to establish. And so their uh, probabilistic assessments do, do not make a lot of sense. But we also have to remember that what we experience, the extreme events, for instance, the extreme heat waves, like one good example is the heat wave of 2003, which was at that time a very big heat wave. But there are only one realization, our, you know, our weather and climate is just one realization of many, many possible states. And when we use large ensemble of climate models, we can find even for the 2003 uh, climate conditions, we could have, there could have been even hotter event. And and so we were just lucky, and still a lot of people died. And and so we can use models and uh, large ensembles to pick events that not have not happened, but they are plausible. They're they're physically there in the models, and 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 that's also and tell a story around it. If if weather had turned out this way, it could have been much worse, uh, or the other way around. I mean, what would we need to do? Um, with our structures, heat warnings, with our infrastructure, with our uh, health system in order to 
withstand a much higher or much hotter heat wave and so on. I mean, the storylines are ways to communicate uh, events that have not happened, but they are physically plausible. And we cannot rely just on this one realization of whether we have every day. I mean, it's just, yeah. A means to uh, to represent storytelling very effectively is by indeed to look at the, the need to do stress testing of a lot of, you know, all kinds of societal applications. And if you go to emergency response uh, organizations like fire brigades or flood protection teams or whatever, they do a lot of, you know, exercising and teaming up uh, to uh, to practice what, what could have happened in, in, instead of what did really happen. And, and that's indeed a very interesting application of these storylines. One of my favorites that was not produced by receipt, but just here in the Netherlands at Delta Tires, which was a, a storyline uh, analysis of the summer 21 uh, extreme rainfall event in Central Europe, where in Germany, Belgium, quite a few uh, victims were there. And in the Netherlands, no casualties uh, uh, happened there, but, but there was a lot of damage. And a lot of regions in, in the Netherlands, they ask themselves, hey, what would have happened if that same event would have put, would have been, you know, uh, released all its rainfall in my region? And so we build a storyline around that event by putting that same amount of precipitation in another region with a totally different water management system, with a polar system that is managed by active pumping, for instance, or in another area where there's much more urbanization and you get you know, combined to discharge peaks that may lead to very high water levels in the embankments uh, of, of uh, densely populated uh, regions, for instance. And it was really an eye-opener to the to the risk managers and also to the spatial planners. Oh, okay, is this, if this is the kind of events that we need to, to cope with, now, okay, then we may need to reconsider our adaptation strategy or our emergency response strategy. We need to cater for, for much more supranational Emergency response, for instance, eh? we have, like everywhere, we have organized our emergency response in, in, in smaller sub-regions. But an event this scale actually requires a lot of interaction between multiple of these units, which is not all arranged very well in, in terms of uh, communication lines, in terms of uh, people knowing each other, in terms of standardization of data, blah, 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 blah. So it gives a lot of inspiration for policy development and not just uh, response to the event itself. Yeah, so so when you're talking about modeling that amount of rainfall, it sounds like, of course, you're not just modeling that one dimension of how the world responds to that, you know, like the change in the, the level of the water table. You're modeling a whole load of other dimensions as well that interact with that. So the impact on the economy, the impact on, I don't know, people people's movements, on infrastructure, on governance, on emergency response and so on. It goes beyond a pure climate model into the rest of the world. I mean, uh, it goes beyond. I mean, the starting point for the storylines is not necessarily the model or what it brings out. It's it's the impact. It's the societal interest in something. I mean, it, it may it be my catchment and I want to make it uh, proof for some certain event, event events or it has been an event that has damaged a lot of infrastructure and I want to avoid that in the future. So we actually the starting point is often from the impact of societal relevance. And if the policymaker would come to us and say, yeah, we are interested in the, the example from the Thames um, where, where the British uh, policymaker asked the, the scientists there, uh, yeah, what would happen if in the future the Thames flooding would be that and that high? And they, so they, they employed their 
best regional climate models and did the simulation and then they were able to show how uh, far the tumps uh, and, and the surrounding areas would be flooded and then they could stress test their current flood plans for the area and that so that was issued by policymakers wanting to <laughs> find out if their measures are appropriate and enough and sufficient and of course there are a lot of measures that are in place especially for flooding we have flood plans we have this um but but uh, the storyline gives an alternative way to to stress test or play around with more uncertainties different uncertainties than than are maybe just incorporated in, in return value analysis and not this probabilistic scenario analysis that we have so far have have used and we can play around also or can use much higher resolution with these storylines that's also a big asset of this this kind of approach because we are not simulating 30 years and and a big area but we are focusing on an event for a specific area so we can we can use the computational resources we have for much higher resolution by which you mean more detail like individual river basins individual towns yes exactly it's more detail but it's also more interdisciplinarity you don't need uh, uh, two and a half kilometer resolutions to map uh, precipitation changes over the world, but you do you do need it once you go into a flood storyline in a in a hilly catchment area. And in order to reach uh, flood risk managers, they need to be able to look at the map where that flood event actually is going to peak. And then uh, a 50 kilometer resolution map is not going to be sufficient. So it's also for to reach out to the the stakeholder or the the practitioner that has to do something with it. Yeah, it's not only resolution. It's it you 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 need representativity, and it's often uh, required high resolution, but not necessary. It's, it it has to be representative for the context where the event is taking place in order to su support a decision that can be taken based on that. So a very practical question then. I'm aware that a lot of our audience works in policy, and I bet some of them are wondering. How quickly can you do this stuff? If a policymaker comes to you and says, like you said, Jana, a policymaker from a London borough say, and they say, I need to know what happens if the Thames rises by two metres, uh, how quickly can you plug in all their local variables and generate a story? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it really depends on the application because often you need not only the climate simulation, you also need an impact model, like for instance, hydrological model or an urban model. And and if these models are in place and people are trained and skilled, then uh, that, uh, that could, of course, uh, be done quickly, but often... Um, there needs to be calibration. There needs to be first the model simulation be done on that high resolution. But I think if this becomes a much more established approach, I think um, the, the, also the, the the model chain that is needed to really um, simulate these kind of physical climate storylines, uh, they they will be much quicker to implement than than uh, right now because every storyline is different. Every storyline needs different models and model input and different impact model and it's a different question but certain elements are similar so science could foster more um, these model chains to set up those that we could use them operationally for questions that come in but it's still it's it's still a handwerk it's still yeah it, it needs as we said it's interdisciplinary it needs a lot of people being involved to to put this the pieces together yeah, as an example, uh, the storyline that I illustrated that we did in Delta RST uh, just recently on that uh, Central European flooding, 
that was done uh, a couple of, well, maybe one or two months after the event took place in a hackathon. And then they put together in four days, they brought in all the models that they would need to do an, a flood analysis uh, that, that, that would apply for specific regions. And that uh, and that was actually uh, enough to, uh, uh, of course, it uh, it was followed up later by a lot more substantiation and a bit more uh, detailed technical modeling. But the outcome of that first hackathon was already enough to give a lot of interest to these uh, regional policymakers, which then assigned follow-up activities to uh, to indeed increase the uh, the, the scientific uh, detail and and the usefulness for stress testing, etc. But you can do it pretty quickly if indeed uh, the equipment is uh, is aligned for it. Since this is so kind of stakeholder policymaker focused, I am wondering: Did you involve stakeholders in the in your project as you were developing this methodology? Well, uh, in, during the project, we 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 had a bit of uh, difficulties to actually find adequate representatives of stakeholders for such a big European kind of question. Uh, but and then on the other hand, uh, the, we see also the difficulty to uh, to run a four-year project with uh, stakeholders that have normally uh, uh, four months uh, attention spans and maybe uh, uh, one year a career uh, timescales. So we also encountered quite frequently that the, the the stakeholders that we did succeed to to engage in there yeah, after a while they were gone and then we had to start over again. So. It, the, the approach what, also, what's the role of stakeholders like what do you get them to do once you've got yeah them the, the role of stakeholders is i think that they, they provide a lot of inspiration to the scientific um, uh, activities that we do they 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 sort of set the scene this is a relevant event this is the kind of impact cascades that they are keen on because they are really you know they are they are the ones that 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 we had to discuss and that we had to implement in our uh, risk emergency or whatever kind of practice that are policy strategies. And so they have a, they are a very rich information source. And then in the end, they are also the, the ones that, that yeah, the main users of the outcome. Yeah? We are then, then working on it, uh, on these on the storyline, and we have to present it in a way that is then also useful in the uh, in the in the context of where the where these practitioners or stakeholders are, are working. And that also needs a bit of tailoring. And I think we really learned uh, also by that project or actually it's 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 substantiation of what we already knew, but this was really clear this is a, an, an approach that actually requires quite a strong co-creation setup between stakeholders, practitioners on one side, and the scientific developers throughout the entire uh, workflow of the of the project. This is not something you can order at the beginning. You let the scientists work for a while, and then at the end, you see the results, and you're yes or no happy. This is really needs a lot of alignment throughout the execution a lot. Yeah. In addition to that, I mean. As Bart said, uh, the stakeholders can set the scene and, and provide uh, uh, the, the the reasoning for a storyline. But then, what we also would like to see is is if the storyline really changes some decision making processes. The storyline that we underpinned with good evidence and is it really useful for the policymaker to base decision on and. If so, how would a, the decision be different from not having it? Because we scientifically argue that this is a better way or provides more information. It can broaden the view of the stakeholder uh, in terms of yeah 
making better decisions because it's not we have more information available so uh, we we need and it would be great to see evidence for policy impact yeah you know if there was one theme that could could claim to be almost universal in conversations i've had with people who are working in interesting areas or at the cutting edge of science advice it's what you just said if only we had a reliable and practical and informative way to measure and evaluate the outcomes that we care about. This is a really a very common difficulty, I think. I think it's also a very relevant message for IPCC itself. I'm now co-chair of World Group 2 of IPCC, and we want the upcoming IPCC reports to be much more you know, action-motivating action or action-enabling. And for that, I think we 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 need to go much more to impact assessments, but not only impact assessments, I think. It's also about uh, assessing the impact of policies. Intervention impact assessments are as important as well. I mean, there's lots of impact assessments of, of changing flood risks or of changing food security uh, things. There's lots of, um, also in the IPC, it's full with, uh, with climate change impact assessment. But I think we really need to dive into, okay, what's, what is the consequence of interventions uh, against these and very often these are the result of a trade-off between pros and cons any any intervention has has of course an atari but also had as um, maybe undesirable consequences as well and we need to be much more uh, realistic about what 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 are the choices and what are the the options for people and how they how how do they have to deal with the inevitable trade-offs that they have to comply with and i think this is also storytelling is also a way to tell about yeah the in, in, inevitability that interventions are necessary but also the inevitability that we need yeah societal discussions of what what we actually are able to avoid or what we are willing to avoid or what what we are willing to what kind of risk we are able or willing to tolerate these are as important for the uh, ultimate decision making as the need to avoid the uh, implications of climate change and i think this this concept is is a useful uh, uh, yeah tool set for for that discussion we've talked a lot about climate climate change I want to finish by asking you if there are any more general lessons to learn here for other areas where research and policy interact. So do you think that this storylines technique can be used for other topics outside of climate change? To what extent is it like a topic neutral technique? Or perhaps a better way to ask it, like what are the features of climate research that other areas might share that make storylines applicable to them? I think storylines and on telling narratives and exploring possibilities is um, applicable to all all kinds of uh, fields and questions. Uh, you, you could also uh, do a storyline where climate change is not involved, where you only, uh, for instance, uh, on ecosystems, biodiversity. What would happen if you have this and this predator being? overhunted and then what happens to the rest of the biosystem uh, or the health system i mean even for covid we could have had a, a storyline uh, in terms of uh, stress testing our health system in case there was a global pandemic i mean yeah <laughs> so i think these storylines are applicable to all kinds of fields for all kinds of decisions we can uh, use uh, this type of additional information 
about uncertainties, about the connection of causalities between elements of a system. In all kinds of uh, questions about systemic risk, this is an approach that we can we can use to understand our system and the, the connection relationships between the elements and where are leverage points to maybe um, avoid cascading impacts, to avoid systemic risk. To you know, I think uh, storylines are fantastic tool <laughs> to bring uh, information to, to to the people. Yeah, so what you're pointing out here is the, the systemic nature of things. And so whenever you've got uh, like a big complicated system with lots of different variables that are linked together in various ways, storylines are a good way to kind of show what happens when you poke at one part of that system and, and the things that spill out of it. Yeah. And I think we better be a bit modest that uh, I don't think the climate science has been the inventor of storylines. It's been there for, for <laughs> a longer time ago. But indeed, uh, economic planning, uh, health system planning, uh, political planning, planning of uh, the housing markets, uh, you name it. Complexity is, is not uh, uniquely uh, reserved for climate uh, features. It's uh, Everything is, uh, is uh, interacting with each other. So there's many angles. Uh, and that's also an interesting element of story, storytelling is that you can bring in multiple dimensions apart from climate change. You do have to cope for yeah, what is actually operation culture in, in an emergency response. Is it feasible that, that these two units are going to collaborate? Yes or no? You know, that kind of thing are also can, can become part of the storylines that, that uh, may uh, give preference to some solutions above others. Uh, and that has nothing to do sometimes with climate uh, elements, but, but just with, with cultural, political, economic, whatever. Uh, it, it's, I think, an, uh, a logical step in uh, the scientist's job to try to get grip on a very complex world. And uh, we do have to pay respect to complexity. We do not uh, simplify complexity, but we do have to simplify the, the intention of complexity to allow people uh, making sense of it and making a, a, a decision that can uh, work with it. And that is a, a sort of a paradox. Eh? We, we need to embrace complexity and yet bring it in a, in a simple, digestible form in order to make it manageable. I don't think the mission of science is to reduce complexity or uncertainty. It's to make it manageable. And that storylines is a very useful uh, tool for Thank you, Bart, for providing such a perfect landing point for what's been a very interesting conversation. I know that you're both busy people, and I hope you found this conversation uh, at least as bit as useful as I have. Um, thank you very much for your time, Bart van den Hoek and Jana Silman. Thank you. The Science for Policy podcast is created by the Scientific Advice Mechanism to the European Commission. It's produced and presented by Toby Wardman, with additional editing by Nina Skorczak. The Scientific Advice Mechanism provides evidence-based expertise and policy recommendations to inform policymaking in the European Commission. This podcast is funded by the EU via the SAPEA Consortium. Our theme music is composed by Carlo Alfredo Piatti and performed by Elisabetta Shushenko.